<clears throat> Turn, please, to Mark in chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, please. I'll read that whole chapter. <clears throat> Your Bible should pretty much be opening up to the Gospel of Mark uh, fairly automatically on Sunday, so I trust you found it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now we come to your word, and I pray that you would help us. God, you've promised that your word would, would work in us. You say it's a two-edged sword, that it pierces and goes deep, and it exposes, I suppose, in us unbelief, and I pray that you would expose unbelief and bring, by the power of your word, belief, enabling us, Father, to persevere, to continue in the faith, to please you. So I pray that this work, this word would have its perfect and complete work in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As he, and that he there is Jesus, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, as the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents, and will have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give, up its, give, give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. 
Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, of God, nor the Son but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in, this, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now, this is a very tantalizing passage. It is primarily, I think, because in verse 4 it uses two of our favorite words, when and signs. We're very interested in when things are going to happen. And we like to know the signs that will lead up to them. I think part of it's probably our, our pride. We, we like to know and be the one to be able to say, oh, there you, I told you it was going to happen then. And we also like to plan. We have a certain measure of security in knowing what's going to come about. And so we like indicators. We like signs. We like to know when thus and such is going to happen. Um, we watch the weather. No. Some people watch the Weather Channel. I have a window. But um, I don't understand the Weather Channel. You know, I, I don't know what, I don't, know, I don't care what the weather's like in Boston. I, I, um, there's a little person sitting in a non-windowed cubicle in Chicago, probably, telling me. But anyway, people like to watch the Weather Channel because they, they want to know what the weather's going to be. So you can plan, so you can maximize the benefit of good weather, minimize the cost of bad weather. Uh, we like indicators about our health. Uh, we like all these little tests that we run and so forth, so we, we get a sense about how we're doing and what we need to do and all of that. We, we watch indicators in the economy so we can, we can plan for the future. We like to know when. We like to know, we like to know signs. Jesus, Jesus wasn't particularly fond of signs. Often when people would come to Jesus and ask him for signs, he would say things like, you wicked and adulterous generation." That's not a favorable response um, to that particular inquiry from Jesus, uh, by Jesus, you see. But in this case, the, the question arose uh, because of something the disciples had observed. They were in Jerusalem and they looked at the temple and it was massive and it was huge and it was magnificent, it was beautiful. The foundation stones for the temples were as big as boxcars stones that large that had been moved and set into place. And the temple area was, was magnificent and, and the disciples were admiring and no doubt just for its beauty but also for its significance in the context of their lives. They couldn't imagine living without the temple in their midst. They couldn't imagine living, what it's, uh, living without what it stood for, the very presence of God amongst them. And they, they noticed its magnificence but Jesus then turned to them and said, you see those stones? There's not a one of them that's going to be left in its right place. And that was so amazing to the disciples of Jesus 
that four of them came to Jesus to ask this very question. And they said in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And I see, that question is a very loaded one. It's loaded because on the one hand, they wanted to know when the temple was going to fall, but they also wanted to know the signs of a fulfillment, which gives a sense of, of not only the temple being destroyed, but also the end of the age coming. Because you see, the disciples of Jesus couldn't imagine one without the other. They couldn't imagine that the temple could be destroyed without the end of the age coming because to them it was one and the same. In fact, as Matthew records this, you don't need to turn to this, I'll just read it to you. In Matthew chapter 24, he, he, he puts the question like this. He says, tell us, the disciples said, when will this happen, that is the temple be destroyed, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so you see, it's one and the same to them. The temple being destroyed, the end of the age. Now, we know that's not the case. We know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. We know the end of the age didn't come in 70 A.D. And so Jesus is now going to speak to them about that. But in so doing, he creates what for most commentators is the most difficult chapter in all of the Gospels. If he reads any, of, any common commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and on the Gospel of Luke, all which have this particular teaching of Jesus, They'll all begin by saying, this is the most difficult of all the passages, of all the teachings of Jesus. And it's difficult, you see, because it's hard to determine what event Jesus is really speaking about. Uh, is he speaking about the temple being destroyed, or is he speaking about his coming and the end of the age? For instance, notice, verse 5, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. So he's speaking obviously right to them. They're in danger of being deceived. And so he's looking these particular disciples in the eye saying, what's about to happen could deceive you, so be careful so that it doesn't. And so it, it's for them. It's for right then. Uh, notice in verse, uh, the end of verse 8, he says, these are the beginning of birth pains. So, so something's going to happen right then that's going to be the beginning of, 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 of pain, of, of trauma. Um, verse 9 you must be on your guard you will be handed over to the local council so, so it's something right to them this is going to happen when you read through the book of Acts and you, and you see Peter and the other apostles uh, being arrested by the religious leaders and by government leaders and having to stand in front of the councils they would then think I trust Jesus told us about this so it's something that was really going to happen uh, to them, notice in verse 14, it says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. Now that's one of those real trigger phrases. Uh, it comes out of the book of Daniel in a couple of different places. And in Daniel, you get the sense that it's the end. But here he's saying to them, when you see this, and this abomination that causes desecration is something that, that, that's a desecration of the temple of God. And so in one sense, it has to happen in a literal sense in the real temple. But in another sense, perhaps it can happen in a figurative sense as well. It happened in one sense, a century or so before, when the temple was desecrated. And now he says, you're going to see this again in some sense. And the temple was desecrated in 70 AD when it was destroyed. You'll notice too then in verse 30, he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will, not pass, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And, and no matter what kind of 
linguistic gymnastics we want to do with that, you, you, you've got to realize that something's going to happen in the context of this generation that's going to fulfill the guts of what Jesus is telling them. And what did happen in the midst of that generation was that the temple was, in fact, destroyed. But, you know, you read this on another day, and you get a little different sense. You get a sense that Jesus is talking about not just the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, but, but, but the end when he comes. For instance, uh, notice in uh, verse 10, uh, he says, And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And so that's going to happen. And then Matthew records the end. Verse 14 says, um, I'm sorry, verse 13 says, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end. So Jesus has the end on his mind as well as the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, notice in verse 19, he says, Because of those days of distress, distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Is he talking about the siege on Jerusalem? That that, that kind of situation will never be equaled again in its, in its violence and its deadliness? Or is he talking about something that's going to happen later that's going to even be more cataclysmic, more, more violent, worse than that? Then in verse 31, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he's talking about everything passing away, which sounds like the end. And then, of course, verse 24. He says, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give, up its, light, will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the the heavens. That sounds like the end. That doesn't sound like something that had already happened or that's already taken place. It sounds like the end. And then, of course, beginning in verse 32, Jesus goes on to this nice little teaching about nobody knows the day or the hour. Not the angels, not even Jesus himself, but only the Father knows that. Again, seems to be talking about the end. So, which is it? Is he giving us signs about the fall of the temple in Jerusalem? Or is he giving us signs about the end, knowing that Jesus was never keen on signs anyway. In fact, he gives us non-signs. He says, now when this happens, like false Christs, that's not the end. And I would have said, I'm sorry, Jesus, I want to know the signs that happen at the end. And then he'd say, well, when you learn of wars and rumors of wars, that's not the end. <sighs> Jesus? I want to know when the end's going to be. Give me those kind of signs. And he says, well, when, you, when, when, when earthquakes and famines happen, that's not the end. When you're persecuted, that's not the end. Jesus, didn't you hear our question? We need to rephrase this in some way? He doesn't really tell. And then he says things like, the gospel will be preached to all the nations. How do you measure that? How do you know when that happens? Does that mean that, you know, one time in the year 163 A.D., the gospel was preached here, so that part of the world's taken care of? Or does it mean on some given day, poof, the gospel makes it? That's hard to measure. Jesus, I'd like a more measurable sign. Thank you very much. Um, the day of distress unequaled, what is that? The, 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 the desolation, um, what's that? How do we define those kinds of things? Well, he says, all right. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And you say, but Jesus, that's the end. I want to know the sign that precedes that. I want to be... So what really is Jesus after here? 
Well, we have to be very careful with this passage, I think. We have to be very careful not to take this passage, Mark chapter 13 or Matthew chapter 24 or Luke chapter 21, all about talking about the same kinds of things, and take it out of its context and, 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 and lay on a whole bunch of other things on this. For instance, there's no talk in here about the millennium. There's no talk about in here about the rebuilding of the temple. There's no talk here about the new Jerusalem. There's no talk here about the rapture of the church. There's no talk here uh, about all kinds of things that people like to talk about when they talk about these kinds of events. Jesus doesn't do that. We have to go to other passages of Scripture and impose on this text our particular system, most of which are debatable, except, of course, for mine. Uh, just for those people who hear this on tape, I smiled when I said that. <sighs> Not any letters. But so, it's, so, it's, so, so let's quickly just grab what we can, but then take it a step to see the purpose for which Jesus spoke these words. And that's where I'll see the heart of it. First of all, it's very clear that the temple was going to fall. They needed to know that. Secondly, for these disciples, it was very clear that they were going to have trouble in their lives. Trouble from outside with false Christ in the midst of their society with wars and also very personally with um, persecutions, trouble. It appears too, you can play with this if you want to at your leisure, that the fall of Jerusalem in some sense was a foreshadowing of the end that was to come. That's why Jesus could speak so fluidly about both of them, that this fall of Jerusalem would in some sense give us a, a sneak peek at the end. And then finally this, that at some time, which Jesus wasn't going to tell because in a mysterious kind of way he didn't know, he would return and bring finality to it all. That's all I can get from this. Now, why was Jesus interested at all in telling him what he told them? That, I think, is the key. And the key then is found in three words. One of the words is used very often. The other two words are just used a couple of times. Notice in verse 5, Jesus says, watch out. It's a little word that in its literal uh, meaning simply means see. That is, make sure you're able to see this. And it's in this context, so this seeing comes in the midst of a warning. So he's saying, be on your guard, watch out. Notice again, he uses it in verse 9. He says, you must be on your guard. What he's concerned about is that they see something that causes them to take their lives and take their faith and take their Christianity very, very seriously. And notice again, in verse 23, he says it again. So be on your guard. Then again, he says it in verse 33. Be on your guard. In some translations, it's, it's take heed, beware. Another word that he uses along these lines is in verse 33. It says, be on guard, be alert. That is, don't fall asleep. This is so significant, so important, that you can't fall asleep in the midst of this. Be alert. Make sure you're really seeing. And then in verses 33 and 34, he says, Therefore, keep watch. That is, be vigilant. Don't rest. Be waiting. Be looking. Be understanding. Be perceiving. Because you see, the great danger in the days that were to come after the ascension of Jesus was that people would be deceived. And deception is the death of Christianity. In the sense that Jesus says that he's the truth. That means 
that everything that he says and everything that he does is reliable, is trustworthy. When he says that he's the truth, it means that you can bank on everything that I've done and you can bank on everything that I've said. You can trust in me and I'll deliver. I really am the one who gives eternal life. When he came to say that he was the bread of life, you can bank on that. That is to say that I can nourish your very souls. When he came to say that he was the light of the world, he said, you can bank on that. That's the truth. You can't see God in anyone other than me. You can't see God through anyone but me. I'm the revealer of God. When he said that he was the door, he meant that. He says, there's no other way into the presence of God other than through me. When he said that he was the good shepherd, he meant that. He says, you can bank on that. That's reliable. That's the truth. I'm the good shepherd. I will sustain you. I will lead you. I will protect you. When he said that he was the resurrection and the life, he said, you can bank on that. Though you die, if you believe in me, you'll be raised to life. I'm the giver of life. When he said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, he says, you can bank on that. That's true. That's reliable. Don't trust anyone else to be the way to the Father. Don't trust anyone else to be the truth about God. Don't let anybody else be the one you depend on to give you life, real life. And when he said that I'm the true vine, he meant that. He says, you can depend upon me, be attached to me, and I'll sustain your very spiritual, eternal life. Now, the danger, you see, is that we're deceived. That is, that we don't believe that. That we believe that there's somebody else who's the bread of life. That we believe that there's somebody else who's the light to us. That we believe someone else can reveal God to us other than Jesus. And we believe that there's someone else who's the door into heaven, into the presence of God, that we believe that there's someone else or something else or some way else uh, other than the good shepherd to protect us and to nurture us and to guide us and to lead us, that we believe that there's someone else uh, who is the resurrection and the giver of life. We believe there's some other way, there's some other way, there's some other truth, there's some other life, there's some other true vine. If we're deceived, you see, then we miss it. And so Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. Now he's saying there's a lot that's going to happen after his ascension. And so he's speaking very directly to these disciples. There's a lot that's going to happen in the midst of your generation that could, that could bring deception, that could shake your faith. So I'm telling you about this ahead of time so that it won't happen. I'm not giving you the specifics. I'm going to have you live by faith. But I'm going to warn you. I'm going to give you some some. some some guidelines. I'm going to give you some events that are going to take place, types of events that are going to take place. And I don't want you to fall away. For instance, John's Gospel doesn't have the same kind of teaching that we find here in Matthew 13, the same particular situation. But Jesus covers all this same stuff again on the night that he was betrayed. And John's the one who gives us that whole discourse from John chapter 13 to John chapter 16. Just very briefly in John chapter 16 and verse 1. Jesus says, all this I've told you so that you will not go astray. And that's his purpose here. He's saying, I want you to maintain faith. I want you to persevere to the end. So I'm going to tell you that it's going to be difficult. I'm going to tell you that there's going to be false Christs who come. Deceivers who come. And they're going to say, I'm he, that I'm really the Messiah, that if you trust me, you'll have eternal life. Jesus says, don't trust them. I want to tell you ahead of time when they come, they're not from me. 
Church history tells us that there were a number who came between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD who claimed to be the very Messiah of God. Some of them were able to do miraculous signs. Uh, Josephus, the historian, tells us. None of them were able to rise from the dead. But they were trying to deceive, trying to lure people, saying, trust me, I'm the giver of life, not this Jesus. But you see, that spirit of false Christs has always been. Turn quickly to 1 John in chapter 2. And verse 18, the apostle writes this. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. As you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. See, even in the days of John, there were these that were referred to as Antichrists. And an Antichrist is not only one who is against Christ, but one who puts himself up over against Christ as an alternative to him. That is to say, it isn't just an enemy of Christ who comes against him. It's one who comes and says, not only don't believe in Jesus, but rather trust me. Notice again in verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. And so, the spirit of Antichrist lives. It lived in the days of these disciples and they would have to face it. It lives in our day as well. It lives in the context of false religion. It lives in the context even of those religions who have the right diagnosis, that is, the problem is our sin, but the wrong solution. The wrong solution in many religions of the world is that, you know, you are a sinner, but you can change your life. And if you just change your life and turn things around and live the best life you possibly can, surely God will accept you as his own. That's a lie. That isn't true at all. Jesus came to say, yes, you are a sinner and you're helpless in turning your life around. And there's nothing you can do to turn your life around so that you can be good enough You simply haven't got it in you. He says, trust me. I was good enough. Trust me. Take my righteousness upon yourself. Trust me. I've paid the penalty for your sins. There's the American religion that says that all faiths, all ways, all paths lead to God. (coughs) Saint Oprah. Right? All paths lead to God. She said, I heard her say this. Forgive me for watching it once. It's terrible about these illustrations. You've got to admit things you don't want to. She was in the audience with a little microphone saying, We know all paths lead to God. And everybody cheered. And I raised my hand in my little living room. He said, I don't know that. That's not true. Because you see, the unique thing about Jesus is the atonement for sin and his perfect righteousness, both of which we need. Our need, our craving, what we need is to have our sins paid for and have righteousness to stand before God. There's nothing out there, there's nothing in here that provides that. There are no other paths 
that provide that. Not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not Mormonism, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not secular humanism. It simply doesn't exist. God, by any other name, isn't necessarily God. Allah doesn't bring that, for there is no atonement for sins. There's no righteousness given. There are other false Christs, the false Christ of political systems. We have political systems that promise the good life. People trust democracy to offer to us the good life, and thus we bask in it. There are economic systems that offer the good life, and so people trust the systems and say, if only I can play by the rules of this capitalistic system, I'll have all that I need. And of course, that was put to the test way back in the days of King Solomon. And thus is the preacher who writes the book of Ecclesiastes, says, I've tried it all. I've tried pleasure. I've tried accumulation. I've tried education. I've tried science. I've tried everything. And it's all vanity. Do you know why? Because on the one hand, no generation has ever been able to set straight that which is crooked. Generation after generation after generation has all the same flaws, all the same sins. There's lying and there's hatred and there's deception, there's immorality. It just exists generation by generation. Who are we fooling? And then he says it's vanity because you know at the end, we all die. Solomon were alive today, he would have penned a phrase that says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. It's done. You just leave it all behind. And then he goes on to say, and somebody you don't know, and probably somebody you don't like, takes what you left and spends it all for their enjoyment. False Christs. He said, listen, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Don't let that shake you. Don't think that this war is the war that's going to bring the end. It might be, but don't bank on it. That's simply the times in which we shall always live wars and rumors of war. Don't let that shake your confidence in Christ. He says there'll be earthquakes and famines, great natural disasters and difficulties. Don't think that that means that the end is here. Don't be disappointed when you wake up the next morning. Don't be disappointed when Christ hasn't come. Don't be disappointed when people say, see, we can survive this, so we can survive anything. We don't need Christ. Don't be sucked into that delusion and deception. And you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be very, very, very personal. Jesus would tell them on another occasion, they hated me, they'll hate you. Just expect it. The Apostle Paul would write, Everyone who desires to live a holy life, a righteous life, will be persecuted. Don't think that when persecution comes, that that's the end. Persevere through it. He says it's even going to get more personal than that. It may be your own sibling that turns you into the authorities for being a Christian. Maybe your brother, maybe your sister, maybe your father, maybe your mother. 
Maybe somebody that you've trusted your whole life and they're the very ones who will turn you in. Don't think that that's the end. Don't be deceived, but persevere through it. Watch out. Be smart. Stay alert. Keep your wits about you all the time. Now, how do we do that? This is the part of the sermon when I tell you nothing new. The way that we do that, the way that we stay alert, the way that we stay on guard, take heed, the way that we see is by worship, word, prayer, walk, witness. We just maintain a great diligence and seriousness and vigilance about our faith. See, it begins in the context of, 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 of worship. We guard our hearts in the midst of worship. Turn to Colossians and chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul's talking about this not being deceived. Notice in verse 4, Colossians 2, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you. So he's talking about not being deceived. And here he's talking about not being deceived by lies, by philosophies of life that are wrong. I tell you this so that no one may, be, may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Verse 6, so then, that is, because I don't want you to be deceived, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now that overflowing with thankfulness part is worship. That overflowing with thankfulness part is guarding your life, being on guard through thankfulness, through worship. Because you see, when we're fostering thankfulness... To Christ, there's no way we can be deceived. Now, there's two methods I use to become more thankful. First method is that I begin to compare what I want with what I have. To be honest with you, I have a lot of stuff I want. And I'm thankful. But that doesn't really do it because, you know, my wants grow faster than my haves. (laughs) You know, and I got to playing catch up all the time. So then I get more realistic and I compare what I need, you know, to what I have. And when I make that comparison, I'm really, really, really thankful because my needs, for whatever reason, are fairly well met. But, But that doesn't last all that long either because my needs are always being redefined. You know, what was the... It was a need yesterday, or want yesterday, as a need today, and so they continue to grow. So then I compare what I have to what I deserve. And that's when I get it. Because you see, what I deserve is hell, what I have is heaven. 
What, what I deserve is to be estranged from God. And what I have is that I've been reconciled to him, adopted into his family. And then I ask myself the question, the second part of this, I ask myself the question, how did I get what I have? Well, the only way I got what I have, heaven, not hell, adoption, not separation, <coughs> reconciliation, not wrath, forgiveness of sins, not condemnation, righteousness, not thrown out of the presence of God. How did I get what I have? I realized the only way I got what I have is from Jesus. Is there anyone else? Is there any way else, other way that I could get that? And the answer to that question is no. And so you see, in the midst of thankfulness, being grateful, being thankful for what I have, because of Christ, I worship. And in the midst of my worship, in the midst of my praise, in the midst of my thankfulness to him, at that moment in time, there is no way anybody else, anyone else can come and win my heart. Because nobody else has done in love what Christ has done for us. I was thinking this morning, I had a picture in my mind, and it was this, a picture of a woman, 1944. Got that? Picture of a woman by her window waiting for her husband to come home from the war. And I was thinking, what is it that keeps her watching? What is it that keeps her alert? And what is it that keeps her on guard so that no other can come and steal her heart while her husband is away? And I thought, you know, I was reminded of a little sentence in the prayer I always pray at a wedding for the couple. I pray this. I pray, Father, may they never take each other's love for granted, but always experience the gratefulness of having been chosen by the other. And I thought, that's what keeps her heart. When she thinks about her husband with gratefulness, when she thinks about her husband and all that he is, and when she thinks about her husband and all that he is, even for her, and when she thinks about her husband and experiences the gratefulness of knowing that she was chosen by him and that she chose him. I think that's what keeps us. And that's what keeps us alert and watching in the context of our relationship with Christ. Thankfulness. To never take his love for granted, but always experience the gratefulness of having been chosen by Worship. Word, very quickly. Paul writes here in Colossians, Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. I shouldn't have to tell us again, although I do, because we all need to hear this again. We need to have our noses in the, in the word of God. It's our very nourishment. It's our very life over and over and over again. If we're not in it, it's as if we've skipped a meal. People, came, people have asked me before, is there any benefit to fasting? And I always say, I, I hope not. But um, then I'd have to do it and I, it just doesn't appeal. But anyway, but I think when I fast, one of the great benefits of fasting is that it reminds us that when we've not been in God's Word, 
we're becoming increasingly hungry. But you know what? We don't always feel it. But when we miss lunch, we feel it by about 1.20. By 3 o'clock, it's all we can think about. But if we've missed being nourished by the Word of God, we can go a week. But you know the danger of going without food too long is that you really do lose your appetite. The danger of going without God's Word too long is we really can lose our appetite. You've got to be built up in this truth. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And gratefulness comes by knowing what Christ has done. And knowing what Christ has done has come by from meditating on his word. And then prayer. Colossians in chapter 4. I know I'm going over. So just relax. Colossians chapter 4. And verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. Puts them all together. In fact, some of you in your versions have. Devote yourself to prayer. Be watchful with thanksgiving it can also be translated be watchful by thanksgiving by worship be watchful but he says pray because you see when we're praying what we're doing is that we're expressing our utter dependence upon God have you ever tried to pray to capitalism and say provide for me well, the truth of the matter you probably have in various ways and didn't even know it but but provide for me, you see? Or democracy, give me freedom. That works too, try to get on an airplane. Pray to them. When we're praying, we're, we're dependent upon God at that moment in time. And that guards our hearts. Because at that moment in time, we're expressing, God, you're the only one I can go to. You're the only one who can meet this need. Lord Jesus, you're the only one through whom I can go to be in the very presence of the Father. And thus, it God's, guards our heart. Worship, word, prayer, our walk. In Colossians 2, he says that we're to continue to live in him, to walk in him. And certainly our witness. Almost every time the New Testament speaks of the second coming of Jesus... It brings it right back to the here and now. Notice in Second Peter in chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He doesn't, doesn't concentrate on this. He says, that's going to happen. Count on it. But the real question isn't, give me the sign, tell me when. Let's have a TV show so we can mark in the newspaper every time something happens in the world that's an earthquake that isn't a sign. Right? Let's not go there. Let's think about how we should live right now. And here's what he says. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. So then, that is, if you're looking forward to a home of righteousness, how should you live now? The short answer is righteously. If you want to live in a new world of righteousness, live now righteously. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. First Peter chapter 4, Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply 
because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in various forms. He's saying, get on with it, people. When Jesus told parables about watching, he told parables about a master leaving the servant behind to watch. And the way that the servant watched was not to look out the window. The way the servant watched was to be about his master's business so that when his master came, he would find his servant doing, being, not just standing by the window. I don't know what the year 2003 is going to bring. My suspicion is there'll be false Christs. There'll be all kinds of things that'll come our way that attempt to deceive us from persevering with Christ. Come from within, come from without. All kinds of difficulties. My suspicion is there'll be wars and rumors of wars. My suspicion is that there will be Christians who will be persecuted in the world for the sake of Christ. Maybe, I don't know, some of us. Jerusalem has fallen, the temple's gone, so we don't have to worry about that. But I think the word of God to us this year, parenthetically, as in every year, is to be on our guard, to stay awake. One of the great difficulties for us right now is that we might be sleeping and not know it. The great difficulties for us right now is we probably don't know how much we depend, how much we rely upon, how much faith we have in our economy, our economic system, our political system. We might not know that till it's taken away. He's saying, stay alert, be on guard, watch. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for laying out what's important for us. I pray, God, for me and for us that we would stay awake, that we would be on guard, that we would understand not only the place we live in, but also we would understand the times in which we live. I pray we wouldn't be deceived, but we would persevere to the end because you do promise that those who persevere to the end will be saved. May nothing come and grab our hearts, grab our attention away from Christ. May we depend upon him and him alone. And Father, may we think upon you so often and may you bring gratefulness into our hearts so that we may worship me. Your word be new and fresh to us this year so that it sustains us. May we, may we pray and cast all of our trouble upon you, knowing that you do care for us. And may we receive from that the great peace that passes. Of that time, the response to the benediction this morning is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him 
who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.